0: It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey, everybody, I'm not dead. Welcome to Rico Bronia. I do apologize. Uh, This is posting later than you expected. We have set the bar here at Rico Bronia that there'll always be a new Rico right after a series is over. I wanted to give it 12 hours. I wanted to make sure my voice was ready for this, I wanted to make sure my brain was ready for this. And since the Mets had a convenient off day, I don't look at it as the end of the world. So I do apologize that we aren't posting this until Thursday night if that's when you're listening, or Friday morning. But it actually worked out well because there was more information that came out about the Mets that we'll get to in this podcast that wouldn't happen if we recorded this right after the Mets got their asses kicked by the Braves in the Marcelo Zune is a douchebag series. So we got a lot to get to. Daryl and Doc's numbers are being retired, the Otani injury, Edwin Diaz is continuing to pitch. Uh, but it's good to be back. It's good to look at Pete Hoffman. We're actually recording this right next to each other. I'm not contagious. I had strep. I'm not going to give you strep, Pete. I promise you.
1: I appreciate that. Well, Listen, again, we said this all fair. As long as you have the antibiotics, you're you're good. for like Once you hit a certain point in time, you're good. That's it. I, I would send my kids to school. Let's put it that way.
0: There you go. I was so <laughs> effed up during this Mets Brave series. I didn't score any of the games. That's how screwed up I was. And I watched Monday and Tuesday in a stupor. In a stupor of, like, sleep, vomit... Um, and every other horrible thing you can think of. So that first game that they had, like it was crazy to me that they had an early 3-0 lead, blew the lead, I passed out, I wake up, all of a sudden they're up 10-4. to And I'm like, what the F happened? So because I'm up all hours, I rewinded it to see, holy crap, and I, what I enjoyed about what they did Monday, and I was going to bring this up on the air Monday, but obviously I wasn't on the air, so this may be outdated, is that, Despite these wins not doing anything in terms of the standings, and if anything being negative based on the draft pick situation, the Mets have shown us over the last couple of weeks or so, really a week and a half, that they have not quit. They have not given up. Now you may say, well, what the hell does that mean? Here's what I think it means, at least in my mind. If you had an effed up locker room, if you had a toxic locker room, if you had a room where everybody hated each other, I think that that would lead to just shriveling up and dying. And right after the trade deadline, they looked like a team that was shriveling up and dying. There's no doubt. They got swept by Kansas City. They got swept by Baltimore. And even though that wasn't proof enough that they had this bad locker room, there was at least some evidence now based on performance to back it up. What they have done outside of the Braves, mainly because the Braves just own their asses and they're 50 times better, I don't want to just ignore what's happened against the Braves. We'll obviously focus on this series, but grand scheme of things, when you look at what they did in the series against Pittsburgh, in the series against St. Louis, is to me at least, and it may not mean that much, it may be irrelevant to most, but I looked at it as, okay, this team has not just shriveled up and died. They're still playing. They're still competing. And while that may not matter in terms of standings, it matters to me in terms of the idea that this is this horrific locker room that needs to be broken up.
1: Yeah, but here's the the thing that disappoints me a little bit is that the people that are doing the winning, the, the, the players that are contributing are guys like Rafael Ortega, like DJ Stewart, guys that weren't here the whole season. Well,
0: that's not true, though. Jeff McNeil's red hot. Francisco Lindor's been red hot. Pete Alonzo's had his moments. Daniel Vogelback is even <laughs> contributing. Like, I get it. They're getting step-up performances by guys that will not be involved next year. You're right. But you can't just – Ignore the fact that there are other guys that
1: have played well during this stretch. No, that's true. And then the disappointing thing is that I mean, uh, take aside yesterday. Start with Jose Quintana. For the most part, he's pitched great. Like you could see him as as not saying a future piece, but like as like a a good number three starter in this this rotation. And seeing how if things worked out, where people were healthy the entire season. That actually this team wasn't that far off. And you see Verlander yeah. you see Verlander and Harry's Houston going, Oh crap. I know. We're not I... that we weren't that far away.
0: Yeah, I I haven't gone full they shouldn't have done it yet. I haven't had that full regret. I mean, look, the Mets are not going on any kind of crazy run here. And I there was no moment during the St. Louis series where I was like, well, if they win this game and then they win this game, I haven't gotten there. But as a fan, I'm enjoying them winning. Because I don't want to sit there every single night and watch listless, crapful baseball. So, I'm glad they've played well. Uh, Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways this season could have gone differently. There's a lot of ways. Verlander missing the first month. Quintana missing the first few months. The injury to Pete Alonso, The struggles of Jeff McNeil. Like There are a lot of different things where if you turn one of those things the other way, this season looks different. They don't necessarily blow it up. And who knows? Because obviously the bottom of the National League is weak. What it's going to take to get that second and third wildcard spot may only be 85 wins. And I don't think we would have guessed that number, let's say, a few months ago. So they do come into this series, at least with a little bit of momentum. I was not, and I would have said this if I was healthy enough to record with you guys the other day, I was never under this belief of, here comes a run. It was more, they're playing well, that's fun. And I want to beat the Braves. And I know that there's this double-edged sword when they play the Braves. They went on Monday night. I'm sure there were Met fans who said this because I was not able to listen to anybody or go on Twitter or read anything because I would get a headache and then vomit. But I'm sure there were some, after that win on Monday, who thought, why now? This should have happened last September or last October. And I get that. I get that. I mean, you could say that about Jeff McNeil's hot streak. Great, you're hot now. What about two months ago? I'm sure Yankee fans said that about Aaron Judge's three-home run game. Great, you do it now with nine in a row. How come you couldn't do this a week and a half ago? It doesn't take away from the fact that I still hate the effing Braves and want to beat them, though. Like, I still want to beat them. And that's why what happened in Game 2 and Game 3 was so freaking frustrating. Because they win the opener of this series. They are set up with a shot to just win a series against Atlanta. Does that change anything? No. But does it make me and maybe some of us feel better in the middle of this horrific season? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the Brave fans are incredibly obnoxious. Excuse me, Marcelo Zuna is the least likable player in baseball. Like, yeah. Chipper Jones, Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz are sharing a booth together, probably laughing at the Mets. Like, yeah, it would have been nice if the Mets could have won a game. And that game, too, was so infuriating. Everything about it, from Alonzo popping up in the eighth inning with the tying run on second to 2 on nobody out in the ninth inning against Rysel Iglesias. And look, Francisco Alvarez has had a fine rookie season. I think at the end of the day, he'll still be one of the positives from this season. But he has been so extremely streaky. And when he came up with 2 on and nobody out in the ninth inning, with the way he's been going lately, there was not a doubt in my mind he was grounding into a double play. Not a doubt in my mind. And that ball off the bat, I thought for a second, well, I'm going to be wrong. It's going to be a triple play. It's going to be a 5-4-3 triple play, and that's how this game's going to end, and why the hell not? Like, that'd be the perfect exclamation point to us sucking against Atlanta. But Alvarez, and I don't even blame Buck now for saying, hey, we're going to cut down his playing time. Why not? He looks like he's worn down. I'm still hopeful for him in the future. He is still the starting catcher of this team next year, no question. I'm not looking to trade him, obviously, but he has been – so up and so, he's been extreme
1: this season. Yeah, well, do you think about the the biggest moments that came uh you know that the, the biggest comebacks came off of his bat in the biggest situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that. He's always I don't know what it is, maybe it's going to be his career. He's always going to be up in the biggest spot. I just it just seems to be with the one game that we went to, I think as well. Like he was up with like the 7th or 8th inning or whatever it was in another big spot. He's consistent. The thing is, he doesn't always land, and that that is a problem. But again, he ain't he, consistent.
0: Consistent of what? Consistent that he's always up in the big spot. Oh, oh, that <laughs> yes, that is true. The big
1: spot <laughs> finds him. I'll give you that. Yeah, <laughs> but it, yeah, but again, the the point is though, is that I will. He will. He has his moments, and that enough will
0: set the tone for future years with him. He's had a fine rookie season. He's done enough where he's the guy. He's the catcher behind the plate next year. He do, he's good enough offensively where when he doesn't catch a day game after night game, he should probably be the, be, be the DH. Obviously, the makeup of the roster will have a lot to say in that. But right now, he's, he's frustrating because he's not the same guy. And if you look at his numbers broken down by month, it's kind of crazy. It's, he's an every-other-month kind of guy. So maybe he'll have a huge September. <laughs> maybe that's what it means. But game two pissed me off. Game two and losing that game three to two was the game where I knew that they're, they're losing this series. There's not a doubt in my mind they're losing this series. And that sucks because it's the Braves and you want to beat them. And Quintana in game three of this series, he was good for a few innings. He ran out of gas in that fifth inning, sixth inning. I forget the inning. Buck stuck with him way too long. I get why he did, though. You know, he's going to trust Quintana. Him and Senga, the only two guys in this rotation you trust, and obviously the game got completely out of whack. As far as Peterson and McGill is concerned, there's nothing they can do over the next month. There's nothing that they have done in the brief time they've entered the rotation that's going to change what they are, which is not members of the rotation next year. You want to view them as depth guys? Fine. Depth guys are never going to be great. Think about it. Like Your depth starting pitchers You can't have them be reliable starters because if they were reliable starters, they'd be reliable starters. They wouldn't be depth guys. I'm intrigued by both of them out of the bullpen to see if they can become better weapons that way, especially with McGill. McGill's velocity has been way up. So it seems like since they traded Max Scherzer, Tyler McGill has taken Max's advice and thrown it out the window and said, why should I listen to this guy? So he's throwing harder, but he's not – there's no evidence – that either McGill or Peterson. And the only P- thing Peterson has going for him is a lefty, so you can be a late developer. I buy that. These guys are not a part of the rotation next year. And if they are, then that just shows you the state of the 2024 New York Mets. Well, but the, my, my other question is this, though. Like, they
1: keep on trying the Peterson, the McGills. I understand that you have to j- just give it a shot. Maybe something will click. But then Joey Locasey goes out there, has a good, good, <laughs> good outing. And they
0: they option him again.
1: It doesn't make yeah. sense to me why they don't give him a fair share.
0: He deserves a fair shake. I think he will come back after the 10 days are up. Obviously, they got a weight-barring injury to bring Joey Casey up. I think probably because they're going to try to limit Senga's innings and not pitch him too often. They're going to want a sixth man in the rotation a lot anyway. I think Casey should come back. I think Casey is definitely a depth guy next year. I, I don't see the upside as much in converting him into the bullpen, into a bullpen role and having him flourish there. I think I can see it more with Peterson and McGill. But those are the auditions we're looking at. Same thing with the bullpen. The bullpen's had its good moments. I mean, think about how well the bullpen pitched on uh, game one of this series. the, The entire bullpen ended up pitching four and a third scoreless innings against that brave lineup, which is not bad. So they've had their moments, but is Phil Bickford or Trevor Gott or Sam Coonrod necessarily a part of this pen next year? I think they battle for spots, but I think you'd want more reliability in this bullpen. Uh, what just annoys me to no end, though, it just kills me, is, and it, again, evident in this series against Atlanta, and this is the team that they should do it against, more Mets get hit and nothing happens. And, and I, I've come up to a new conclusion. Ronald Acuna Jr. is a great baseball player, And I have no issue with him as a person. I've seen nothing that makes me think Ronald Acuna is a bad guy. He's a flashy baseball player. He is a great baseball player. I respect him. Like, I I just respect Ronald Acuna. So I need to change something I've said for months, which is the Mets need to drill Ronald Acuna. He's not the guy. The guy they need to drill is Marcelo Zuna. He's a douche, number one. Okay, let's – and Brave fans know it. I know they feel bad cheering for him. We'd all do the same thing, too. Like, you're cheering for the performance, not the human. They all know he's a horrible scumbag. Like, we all know that. That's not debatable. So, when you drill him, you could accomplish a couple of things. A, you could do it to stand up for yourself. Two, you could punish a bad human being. And three, he was like 8 for 12 in this series. So, he's also tortured the Mets. So, it's done now because they don't play the Braves again. But they should have drilled this guy like five different times. And the gutless Mets have continued, and I blame Buck for this mostly. The tone is set by the manager. Like, why they have not ever decided to fight back, whether it's, I think, charging the mound is an individual person issue. So I wouldn't put that on, Buck. That's up to the player. Guy gets drilled, he wants to charge the mound, go dance, go dance. But in terms of hitting somebody, it bothers me that Buck has never called upon the Mets to do it, and now it's too late unless you want to wait till April of next year.
1: Well, listen, again, do they have someone that can actually hit somebody is the question. Oh, come on, Sam Coonrod can hit somebody. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't understand the point of of fighting when it comes down to the hitters. I will never say that they should go and charge them out because they literally I don't want to see Alonzo get hurt. Again, I don't want to see, you know, when when Nimmo or any McNeil, Lindor, whoever's getting hit. They have too many injuries as it, as it is. I don't need to see a brawl like that. You're right about hitting you're right about hitting Ozuna. That's fine. But I will take it away from the the hitters themselves. I do not need to see them go out there and start a
0: brawl and then all of a sudden get what Edwin Diaz just just by okay. being physical. But but Pete, it's August 24th in a season that's over. So if there's ever a time to do it, wouldn't it have been now? Oh yeah, I know, of course, Fracture but cheer your hand. You'll be back next year. No, but then you know they're not like that. They, these guys, Pete Alonso wants to
1: play. Pete Alonso wants to play. I, I respect it, but and that's a that that is a problem. <laughs> and again, this is from something that if you look at the Chicago White Sox, the team leaders like they asked that they they grilled Eloy Jimenez the other day and said, "What about the leadership? Have you discussed Has Anybody discussed with you being a leader on the team?" I don't know if the Mets really have any true leaders that want to step up.
0: I really don't. Well. Like, I think Lindor has always given off the image that he's the leader of this team, but he may not be the kind of I-want-to-fight-other-people leader that Keith Hernandez was. In fact, and I noticed this from this series against Atlanta, Keith was more disgusted than ever with Lindor hugging umpires, shaking hands with opponents, and that's not, to me, Lindor. That's baseball in 2023. It's not a Lindor thing. It's a, hey, Keith, and I'm not ripping Keith because I understand where he's coming from, but... This is 2023 where players are friends with players and they're friends with umpires. I think that happened, I forget which game of this series, when Lindor hugged an umpire. And Keith's like, whoa, what are you doing? So I think Lindor, while he is a leader in my mind, I don't think he's a, hey, I want to kick your ass leader. He wouldn't fit the 86 Mets, is my point.
1: Well, I mean, he would take it out on Jeff McNeil, but that's about
0: it. Well- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was the one example of it, I guess. But that took a lot. took a lot of prodding, I guess, before that finally (laughs) happened. Either way, this series sucked. Let's just call it like it is. They win a game against Atlanta. We're feeling better about ourselves. And the Mets never saw another lead again. That's what it came down to. They do take on the Angels this weekend. There will be no Shohei Otani, which... Here's why this sucks. It's purely selfish. I want to point this out right away. Selfish. First world problem. My med tickets are worthless. Okay. They have absolutely no value. Now, I don't mind handing it out to people, uh, social media followers, Rico Bronia listeners. I got no problem to the games I can't go to. I have no issue with that. I'd rather do that than sell them for $11 a ticket. About a week and a half ago, I looked at the med schedule and said my one chance, not even to make money, but to get something back, was Shohei Otani. God forbid he pitches a game. Even if he doesn't, he's playing at City Field. This is an event. This is special for us. Not all of us go to Yankee Stadium once a year to see him. Wow, this is going to be amazing. And so I was looking at this weekend against the Angels as not only an opportunity to see him for the first time ever. I have not in person. But, hey, maybe I'll actually be able to get a few dollars back for some of my tickets and extra tickets. And then what happens? Shohei Otani and his Born UCL. I mean, what are we talking about? So, selfishly, I'm disappointed I don't get to see him, and I'm disappointed that the Met tickets over the weekend are completely worthless. But I had this epiphany. Epiphany? Epiphany. 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 Yeah, that used to piss Craig off, and I would say it wrong. I had this epiphany the other night. When Kevin Durant tore his Achilles against the Toronto Raptors in the NBA Finals, I didn't know this at the time. It was a horrible injury. Nobody wanted to see that happen. It changed his free agency. It did. I Does he still sign with the Nets if he's not hurt? I don't know. But there's certainly been a lot of reporting that have said, no, it would have changed his free agency. I think Otani's injury has changed his free agency. I think it's changed it in a major, major, major way. Number one, could Otani say, you know what? I'm just taking a one-year deal. Because I need to prove that I am healthy. I need to prove that that I can pitch at a high level and kind of get back to where things were a month ago when I was going to get $600 million. That's possibility number one. I do not think that's likely, but I'm just throwing it out there. Possibility number two is he's going to go in a free agency with uncertainty about his UCO. Most teams wanted to pay for a two-way star, not a one-way star. A one-way star is still pretty good. I mean, Shohei Otani's is one of the best bats in baseball. Most teams could use him. But then he's no longer special. He's just this incredibly gifted left-handed bat. That's all he is. He's not a pitcher. How many teams could afford to pay him like a two-way star, knowing he may not contribute in 2024? How many teams have said privately, well, we think we'll be good in 2024, but we're really going to be good in 25 and 26? What I wonder about is if the Mets are going to be more willing than any other team in baseball to pay Otani the full allotment of what he wanted, knowing, hey, he may not pitch in 2024, but that's okay. Because my plan to contend was more 25, 26, 27 anyway. And that's where I think the Mets gained a lot the other night. And it is very similar, I, I hate to say it, it's very similar to Durant's Achilles changing his free agency, even though I didn't realize that at the moment. This I'm realizing in the moment that there are going to be a lot of teams interested in Otani, but take any big market team, take the Yankees. Are they going to be willing to pay for the uncertainty of him pitching in 2024? The answer is no. They need to win in 2024. They can't plan on, well, we'll see what happens. They're not going to pay him $60 million a year. But if there is an owner willing to take the risk, and it's a risky risk, but isn't it worth it? Because if it works, you got the greatest player we've ever seen. And if it doesn't work, you've got a really, really overpriced slugger. I mean, that's not the worst-case scenario, right?
1: You have obviously, like, you talk about, like, Aaron Judge, for example. No one thought he was going to get hurt this year. no one, Everyone talked about, talked about the injury issues in the past. But no one said, like, hey, he's going to run through a wall, he's going to break his toe, and he's going to be out for 50 days, 50 games. The reality is you know already that he's hurt. But I would still say Shoei Otani in a 10-year span for $600 million is going to give you better stats throughout five to six years than not having him. And he's going to help you win. So I think he is now a lock. And I thought this – you're the first person I thought of. I'm glad that you brought this up about Mm -hmm. the Nets because it actually fits. This was the actually thing. fits as if all my other <laughs> analogies
0: don't. You always sort of
1: way to it. No, but this, this worked. If you didn't bring it up, I was, good. because this is perfect. The Mets are a lot to get Shohei Otani because I think you're right. No one else is going to want to dish out that amount of money.
0: See, the Mets could still pay him for being a two-way star, knowing he may not be a two-way star in 2024. Let's say he needs Tommy John, and that feels like a death knell because it would be his second. We've seen very few guys come back from multiple Tommy Johns, though there are examples. Uh, Nate Valdi, I think, has had two Tommy Johns. I think there's a few others. Otani's also shown he's superhuman. If there's somebody capable of coming back from a second Tommy John, could it be Otani? So if he recovers for twenty twenty five. And by the way, I don't think his pitching future necessarily has to be tied to being a starting pitcher. I know there's a lot of complications logistically to him being a closer while also being a slugger in a lineup full time, but I, I could see that happening. I can see that role also being incredibly valuable. I think that the Mets are one of the teams that could afford to pay him for what he may be in two years as compared to any other team in baseball that's going to look at him now and say, well, I can't pay for this. I can't pay for you being a two-way star. I don't know if you're going to be a two-way star next year. I don't know if I'd go as far as Locke, but I think their odds have gone up. I really do. I think their chances have gotten better based on this incredibly unfortunate situation for him.
1: And now, is this the same situation that – that Tanaka went through, that Masahiro, he had a tear in his UCL, but they never did the surgery.
0: Well, you can pitch through a partially torn UCL. Adam Wainwright did it for many years. Masahiro Tanaka's done it for many years. Uh, DeGrom did it for a few months, I think, before he finally needed it. We don't know. And I think that's going to be the mystery of his free agency, is that we don't know. And every general manager and every doctor that a team uses – may have a different opinion on it. So unless Otani and his personal doctors are making a decision before signing as a free agent, every team is going to have their own view on what they think of his arm issue. Like every team's going to look at it differently. That's what's going to make this free agency even more fascinating than it already was. But if there is a team position to take, and it's a risk. Of course it's a risk. We all know that. And I get it that there are going to be people listening saying it's not worth the risk. I'd only differ with you because I think it is worth the risk because in a worst-case scenario, assuming he can still hit, I got a hitter. Now, obviously, the worst worst worst-case scenario is he can't do anything. If he can't do anything, I got a sunk cost of $60 million a year. But if he can still be the slugger he's been this year and he's making $60 million a year, yes, that's overpaid. Yes, no singular players worth 60 unless they're doing both things. But that's the risk for getting the superstar that can do both. And I think the Mets are positioned, especially based on the whole idea of we want to be good next year, but we're really thinking about 25, 26. Based on that, they could say, yeah, go have your Tommy John. Don't worry about pitching in 24. We'll give you the full allotment. Kind of like what the Nets did with Durant. Full max." No issues. You ain't gonna play this year. Don't worry. We got you.
1: I I could kind of see it. I love it. And then especially the fact that you can now give another year to, and I'm not saying that we're gonna you know throw in the 24 season. I'm not saying no, that's no, no. the case, but you do have that 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 opportunity to look in on some of these younger guys that you do have, the vassals of the world you bringing up the, the Mauricio's hopefully actually gets an opportunity. And you don't have to feel as much pressure about it because you do know, again, like you said, 25, you're going to compete. And here's the other thing, too, is I think that as far as business-wise goes, <clears throat> you talk about Otani. When he plays, they will sell out every game.
0: Yeah, no, there's a business aspect to it. There's no question about that. There's definitely a business aspect to it, which I think the Mets have a lot to gain from. The Yankees sell out or come close to sellouts every single night. And I don't believe that changes next year, even with the Yankees coming off of this bad season. So financially, I think based on ticket sales, based on uh, the commercials you put out in the outfield, whatever that's called, the billboard stuff, uh, jersey sales. I don't think you actually get the money off of jersey sales, so i leave jersey sales out. Uh, local TV ratings, I do think there's more – Room for the Mets to gain, and there even would be for the Yankees, and certainly the Mets have an owner that I think is willing to spend more. So I feel bad for Shohei Ohtani. I, I do. I was looking forward to watching him this weekend, but I really do think this has a little uh, Durant Achilles. Uh, it's got a little Durant Achilles in there.
1: In the long run, it is going to be beneficial for the Mets. I, yes. I, I really do believe it. I yes. think you're right. I think you're onto something, my friend.
0: Uh, let's get to these retired numbers. This is why delaying this Rico turned out to be really, really good. I didn't see this one coming. Joe B's been yelling about it for about two years. It's been more than two years, but ever since the Mets reopened the idea of retiring numbers, Keith Hernandez, Jerry Kuzman, I know Beningo's been screaming about it. And I've, I've understood. Uh, in the past, I have been anti-retiring numbers. I like the fact that the Mets had this very tough standard for retiring numbers. I lost the debate. So that's the way I look at it. Because Sal was even asking me earlier, he said, are you still anti-retiring numbers? And I said, well, here's the problem. I liked the bar they had for former players. I liked the idea of you better be a Hall of Famer. You better have spent your entire career with the team. Otherwise, I'm not just retiring a number. I lost. Like I I lost the debate. Jerry Kuzman didn't qualify for that. His number's retired. Keith Hernandez didn't qualify for that. His number's retired. So for me to continue with the same archaic thought would be a waste of time. It's already been blown open. So now that you've retired Kuzman's number, now that you've retired Keith's number, I have zero issue with retiring Doc and Daryl's number. I think what the Mets have shown with these recent retired numbers is that 1969 and 1986 really matter. And if you were a part of a championship team, we're going to relook at your legacy and decide, hey, maybe you should have your number retired. So when it comes to 1986, they broke... The, uh, what's it called? They broke the something. The barrier. I was going to say something sexual, but I probably shouldn't. Broke the, the they broke something by retiring Keith's number. They said, okay, here's your first guy from 1986. Now they go Doc and and Daryl. The only issue I have, and I I can't even say it's an issue because they'll probably get it right eventually, is there was a Hall of Famer on the 86 Mets. There was a guy who who thought of himself as the captain of the 86 Mets. And that guy's Gary Carter. So Keith, yes. Doc, yes. Darryl, yes. But this legitimately leads to the next guy, and the next guy's Gary Carter. So what this has done, and I'm not complaining about it. I'm analyzing. So all I'm doing right now. Is it's opened up the floodgates to more guys. Once you retire Kuzman, you got to retire Keith. Once you retire Keith, you got to go Doc and Darryl. Once you go Doc and Darryl, you got to go Gary Carter. I think that will inevitably happen. Unfortunately, because Gary is no longer with us, they probably don't feel like there's any rush. It sucks to say that. That's the truth. Doc and Darryl are with us right now. Retire their numbers. So I'm happy for Doc and Darryl. They're a huge part of the history of this franchise. Doc Gooden was my first favorite mech growing up. I started to understand baseball as Darryl was leaving. That's where I'm at with Darryl Strawberry. And I always, growing up, had this hope that they would bring him back, that he would be able to finish his career with the New York Mets. That did not happen. We know about his legacy with the Yankees, which is just, what can you do? I mean, you know, I, I don't blame Doc or Darryl for it. George Steinbrenner wanted to collect 86 Mets. He also was, I think, deep down a good guy. Like, deep down, I think he wanted to help these guys. So, I do respect that and appreciate that. But, yes, it does pain me that Doc and Darryl were Yankees. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to you. It, it sickens me that Doc couldn't return to Shea Stadium as a New York Yankee in 2000. It does. It sickens me that Yankees angels at Shea Stadium, when the beam fell, Daryl's hitting a fly ball to left center field, and the home red apple's starting to come up. Like, that. all that stuff sickens me. With that said, they are legendary Mets. They don't win the 86 World Series without them. In a lot of ways, they're the faces of the 86 Mets. So, congratulations to Doc and Darrell. I have lost the argument when it comes to retired numbers, so no. I have no ill will towards those guys getting their numbers retired. But don't
1: you like the fact that it's the history of the Mets is now really being more prominent? I know it sucks that it's always like, well, just the 86 and 69 team, really, that we always talk about. But the reality is, is like, you know, you do have to highlight those those moments and those players, because other, otherwise there is no history. Like we could talk about like the the '93 team and some bad Bobby Bonilla teams, or whatever the case is. You know, we could talk about Dave, the, the David Wright and the Jose Reyes what it could have should have. But the reality is, it's just the '86 really re, in recent years that we can really talk about and highlight, and especially be, the guys that are around still. So I think it's it's important. And listen, I understand there's a battle, and I understand like the. Hey, it makes it feel more special because we have such a limited, you know, limited history of people getting into the Hall of Fame and retiring their number and all that other stuff. But I think it's important just to kind of open that. And that's what i say. Like, David Wright's going to get in. Like, they're going to retire his number soon. I, was,
0: I would have always been in favor of David because I think he was kind of like the Mattingly of the Mets. Career met. Career ended, unfortunately, early due to injury. He was a tremendous player. But, I, look, I can't relitigate the argument. I lost I'm good with it now. It's not like I protest these retired Jersey Knights and say, ooh, I hate it. No, I mean, it is what it is. It, it sort of bothers me, though, that for the last few years, knowing this was going to happen. Because deep down, once they retired Kuzman's number, you knew it'll be Keith, it'll be Doc, it'll be Daryl, it will be Gary, it'll be David. Those are the guys I'm pretty comfortable with they'll retire the numbers of. Why, why do you give out Doc Gooden's number last year to Travis Jankowski. I'm serious. Why last year do you give Daryl Strawberry's number out to Nick Plummer? Like, why? That's the only thing that sort of bothers me. Like, I can't argue about Paula Duca wearing it in 2006 because it was a long time ago. Or Rick Ankill wearing it in 2013. Or Dice K wearing 16. Or Alejandro DeAza. Like, I can't argue that because it, was, it wasn't clear then. Like, I didn't know, none of us knew during the Wilpon era that this all of a sudden was going to change. And by the way, the Wilpons started this change. We, we can't ignore that. They were owners when Kuzman's number got retired. So if we're just being fair about this, I don't look at this as a, hey, Steve Cohen changed it. Howie Rose probably changed it. Howie's got a lot of influence in that, uh, that committee. And that's fine, by the way. That's great. I'm glad Howie and Gary are Mets Hall of the Famers. They deserve it. It's just strange to me to think back to all the horrible Mets, horrible Mets that were eighteen and sixteen over the last thirty years. Like it wasn't even good Mets, like horrible Mets that wore these numbers that will never be worn again. That kind of annoys
1: me. Wasn't the same thing with Keith too? Like they went through like yes, the, it was a, a parade of of
0: crap <laughs> that basically had more than numbers yeah. on the team. <laughs> like no one's worn five, right? Because we all knew. No, basically nobody wore 24, but 24 had been basically retired for a long time by the Mets without it officially being retired. So I'm happy for uh, doc and Daryl. We'll do some more podcasts about retired numbers. Cause I'm sure a lot of people have other ideas on who should be retired. I should retire this number, that number, this number, that number. Oh, one last thing. Cause it pains me to talk, but it's good to talk. Cause I've said more words on this Rico than I have in the last four days. So I've certainly, uh, I'm getting back in the swing of things. Edwin Diaz continues to throw off a bullpen mound. I'll say this again. If the doctors approve it, and it means a lot to Diaz to be on a major league mound, put him on a major league mound. Obviously, if there's a greater risk to re-injuring himself, he shouldn't be on a major league mound. I don't think that's the case. I think he's made an incredibly speedy recovery, and if for him coming back, even if it's one major league inning, last weekend of the season, if that's something for him saying, hey, I made it back, then I got no issue with it.
1: I Listen, I can't disagree with you on that if it's for him. If it's only for him. If it's like, hey, Edwin, do you want to pitch the last week? Do you, you think you can be good enough to get – Get in there and you know give the fans something. I don't want it to be about the fans. I don't want it to be about anything else but Edwin Diaz. That's that's really what it comes down. Because I look, we talked about this before. I, I do not need him to get hurt,
0: getting rushed back for a week. But he's know. not being rushed back. I know. Well, that's what they say. I mean, he's thrown off a bullpen mound. Like he's he's recovering from his injury. Um, I don't get the sense he's being rushed. He's just he's made a. An incredibly quick comeback. And because he's a reliever and he doesn't have to build himself up that much, returning is not that crazy. And also, let's say he, the Mets announced, you know what, he'd be ready for a rehab assignment in two weeks. Why not just have it at the major league level? Like, what the hell's the difference? We've said that before in the past about rehab assignments. He's a reliever. Come out, throw an inning. If you give up six runs, who cares?
1: Do you think the fan base will go back to – because remember – and look how long it took for him to be like a, a, a relief pitcher that the fans could get behind Oh, they love him. If he goes out there for a week or two and gets shelled, do you think people are going to start being like, oh, crap, what do we got here?
0: Nah, because I think 70% of Mets fans have checked out. <laughs> I really do. I think that we, we, we as the diehards are the only ones still watching for the most part or going to games. No, I don't think you would lose confidence in Mets fans. I think you'd get a, a monstrous standing ovation, that's for sure. I think you'd have an emotional return to City Field. With those trumpets playing,
1: oh my God! Well, listen, I have the bobblehead. Did you, get, did you get the bobblehead by the way, or no? No. Oh, you missed out. It was awesome. It, it, Which it was, game was that again? That was the Tuesday versus the Pirates.
0: Yeah, and I couldn't go to that series. Uh, we were doing shows from Jet and Giant Camp. I didn't have enough time to go. Right. No. Yeah. I got real quick before because I know you want to. If you you don't, you can lay out here. <laughs> I just have
1: to say something. Go ahead. Because there is a new team now that's taken pe- that has surpassed the Braves as the heated rival. It is now the Milwaukee Brewers. I screw them. Oh yeah, uh, I, the Pete Alonso thing. I'm glad you brought that up. I apologize. Yeah, I, yeah. I, they are now enemy number one because I understand the whole thing. They don't want to give up David Stearns. Uh, he's somebody that that clearly is an asset to them. He wants out of there. He wants to come to here. I understand all that stuff. But the fact that they leaked all that news about Pete Alonso to try to basically, you know, cause more chaos in the Mets locker. Uh, F them, we are going to crush them the first series next year and the last series of the season.
0: Well, first of all, it shows you how my mind is still not completely there. I was going to leave that completely out of this podcast because I forgot. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's a good job. <laughs> that could have been a freaking open. We got started with that. Um, I agree with you that that was probably leaked by the Brewers, the Ken Rosenthal report, that they were within a field goal of trading him to Milwaukee. But here's what's clearly true. They shopped them. They shopped them. They shopped them at the trade deadline. They decided not to trade them. They didn't get a good enough return in their mind. But that does scare me that they're going to shop them again. Yeah. Am but, I wrong? No, but, but wait a second. It's like when they used to do the waiver wire trades. They used to put everyone on waivers. And yeah, you know, they pulled them off. I, I, get, I get that more guys are shopped than we realized. I do. But there's clearly something. And I don't think it's locker room related. I think it's value related. That the Mets are not as in love with Pete Alonso as we, the fans, are. The most important question that has not been answered, have they talked about a contract? That's what I want to know. If they have not talked about a contract, I'd be incredibly worried. If they've talked about a contract, then I would get it. Then I'd say, okay, they're far away on a deal. The Mets are just shopping just to see, and we'll see how this goes. We'll see how, we'll see if, Alonzo moves off on his demands if the Mets move off on what they're willing to offer. But if there's been no contact between the two in regards to a long-term contract, and it hasn't been reported because no one's talking, which I guess is good for Alonzo and good for the Mets. They want to keep that stuff secret. But that's the most important piece of news that I want to know about Pete. Have they actively had any discussion about a long-term contract? Um, Here's what scares me about trading Pete Alonzo. You could take the Milwaukee Brewer Farm System and say, well, the Brewer's not going to trade their top five prospects. That's not realistic. Is there a deal headlined by one or two of their prospects that would make you say, oh, that's such a good deal. I got to go make it. And here's what scares me. Prospects are still prospects. Like, when you get prospects for 40-year-old Justin Verlander and 39-year-old Max Scherzer, it's easy to say, yeah, they're prospects, they're lottery tickets. But again, look what you're trading away. You're trading away a guy or guys that maybe have a year or two left in them. That's it. When you trade Pete and you don't sign him, you're trading away potentially 10 years that a guy has for lottery tickets. And that's why when you look at the history of all of these trades, like I saw Brandon tweet that out the other day about all these stars that have been traded. What I think he realizes, and we should all realize, is, yeah, all those trades sucked for the teams that traded those guys. So I think his overall point was, of course you could trade Pete Alonso. These other guys were traded. Yeah, I mean, no one's saying you can't trade him. But those returns of top-level prospects turned into what? That's scary, man. That's what's so frightening about it. Like, even think about the return they got for R.A. Dickey. And I'm not comparing Alonzo to Dickey at all. I'm comparing to how pumped we were about the return. Like, oh, my God, can you believe it? They got Travis Darno. They got Noah Syndergaard. And they got this awesome outfield prospect. This trade is amazing. Okay, now it's been a decade. How amazing was it? Like, Darno was okay. Syndergaard was good for a while. They're both gone. So if that was your return for a Pete Alonso, we'd be sickened. We'd be disgusted. And that's the thing: the bar on what you need to get back for someone so as reliably good as Pete Alonso is stupidly high. Like you don't just have to hit on a prospect; you got to hit them into a star. Because if not, you got worse. That's the pro- that's why it's so effing risky, and I don't love it. You wanna take phone calls, fine, take phone calls. But even a prospect rich deal seems to be so insanely risky as opposed to locking this man up long term.
1: I mean I don't understand. Like people think that 40 and 100 just, just you know just grow on trees. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen the way that Pete Alonso pulls it off. And again, we've talked about you and I specifically talked about how good his defense has has become recently. It's getting better. He's only getting better. If you trade him now, I get that that his his or if you try to trade him now I get that you know you're getting value or as much value as you possibly can because you know maybe it's a problem. but he's I don't need to see him in a different jersey. And we talk about the history, retired numbers. Like this guy, like we said, we, he's gonna break so many records as a met Why
0: what are we what are we really well, doing here? There's there's two aspects. There's the emotional aspect, which I didn't even bring up. You just did and it's great and I don't think you're wrong. There's the emotional aspect and then there's just the baseball aspect. And the baseball aspect is really, really risky. Because like I laid out, you acquire prospects, lottery tickets for the hope. For the hope that yeah, they'll be half as good as Pete Alonso, who's already proven what he is. And like you said, he's getting better and better and better. So I don't love it. It scares me that they've had conversations about it. I do agree it was leaked by Milwaukee. And I would hope that if David Stearns really is taking over, and I think he is, I think we all think he is, that you would allow him to make that decision, you know, as opposed to trading him to Milwaukee before he ever took over. Now, that's not the case. It's not happening, at least for now. But I am nervous about the future of Pete Alonso, and I think that building a championship team becomes even more difficult with Pete not here. I really do. I think he's a tremendous baseball player that's very difficult to replace, and I haven't even brought up the emotional aspect of it that you're right about. We'll spend a lot more time on this as, obviously, the days and weeks go by. We apologize for not getting into any of the emails. We will. Coming up on our next pod, you can email us, b at gmail.com. Thank you to Paul Rosenberg and Pete Hoffman. Did a great job last week filling in. I'm sorry for letting people down. All right? I was really – I thought I was going to die. That's how sick I – that's pretty dramatic, though. He, he looks great, guys, by the way. He looks perfect. <laughs> Oh, he's just—he's just playing
1: hooky. He wanted to take
0: some time away from us. Oh, trust me, trust me. I love my family, but uh, no, i uh, I was not looking to—I <laughs> was not looking to get away from you or the show. But uh, I'm back at least on WFN for a few days, and uh, we'll be back with more Rico's. Maybe we'll even give you a bonus Rico because I feel so bad. But thank you for listening and downloading to this a little bit late edition of Rico Brilliant.